This week on Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Christ places us, though, in a church where he knows what it will take to make us holy, that is, like Christ. Jesus told his disciples that he would build his church. But what kind of church is Jesus building? Who can join this church? What is this church supposed to do? Dr. Corbett teaches all of these issues in his series, The Church Reimagined. We're continuing in our Reimagined Church series. And again, I just remind you that one of the reasons for looking at this is throughout COVID, many Christians experienced lockdowns, not necessarily here, but it certainly was here for a brief moment. But around the world, many people were locked out of doing church the way perhaps God's word prescribes and they reimagined church to be something that they could do perhaps on a screen, perhaps individually, perhaps without any connection with anyone else who was perhaps also sharing the same screen or sharing a, a screen of the same event at least. What I want to do now is call people back to reimagine. Reimagine church, reimagine it being informed by how Christ envisaged church and how we are given information in the New Testament about how Christ wants us to reimagine church. So let's pray. Father, as we look at this incredibly important topic of the church that Christ your Son came to build, to gather the lost into, help us, Lord, to see in your word things that will reimagine church in our visions help us lord to recognize church is not just a thing for some but it's for all of your children so lord i pray help me to do this with wisdom and grace but most importantly according to your word i pray amen i really do want to re cause us to reimagine church i want to challenge us to reimagine what the Bible describes as church and to get a fresh vision for it. We are living in an age where we have experienced these lockdowns and we've, we've had churches that were not able to meet at times in some parts of the world. It was unthinkable that this would ever happen, but it was made illegal to gather as a church. There were some people, some pastors, some church leaders in some parts of the world that recognised that this was perhaps not the best thing to do or they they responded some in some ways of even doing what was for them illegal in meeting i want to suggest that we hopefully will never have to go through this again and if we do we we should have a clear vision of what christ wants us to be as a church so this is my challenge that as we look at scripture we will see from Scripture that God is, has called the church to be something and to do something. And both of those are important. So as we do that, I remind you of the Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, and it describes the church. For just as the body, that's the picture that the Bible gives of the church, the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body through though many are one body so it is with christ so we've mentioned that christ is the head of the church but his church is his hands and feet now that is we are his body on earth 
So what Christ wants to do on the earth after he ascended to the Father, he does through the church. This is really important. So the church was birthed when Christ had ascended back to his Father, but this wasn't he didn't leave the church, the founding disciples, the founding apostles, with no idea of what he was trying to do. In fact, he gave them a very clear idea of what he wanted to do. We read in Luke chapter 19 that Christ had come to seek and save the lost. But that wasn't all he came to do. He came to build his church. So what was he going to do when he found the lost, when he saved the lost, when he redeemed and rescued people who were ensnared in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, out of the domain of Satan, into the kingdom of God and his light, his kingdom? That's Acts chapter 26, verse 18, by the way. What did he want to do? He wanted to knit them together into a church. We see in Romans chapter 12 that Paul lists from verse 9 down to verse 21, 27 things that he expected that Christians would do in order to grow in their relationship with Christ. And of those 27 things, not one of them is possible without being a part of a church, without belonging to a church. Some of those things include love one another. They, they include put up with one another, be patient with one another, show hospitality to one another. In fact, I would say that church is God's means for making his people holy. And, and when we think about this, it's sometimes by spending time with people who we perhaps might find irri irritating or objectionable that God has to do something in us. Sometimes what he has to do in us is help us to be able to forgive. Sometimes what God has to do in us by us simply belonging to a church is learning how to reconcile. And the Bible actually says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And sometimes for some of us that starts within the four walls of a church. Sometimes we have to know how to act as a family. I only have four children. I know that there are some people who have many more than four. And we can tell you that sometimes in a family there are disagreements. Sometimes the dinner table can be a little bit tense because maybe there's been a squabble between the children or even the children and the parents or the pa in between, the, between the parents themselves. And so what happens in a family is, as you sit down at the dinner table, you really have to get these things sorted out. And that's what church is like too. Sometimes things happen, offences are given, offence is taken, and God expects his children to learn how to act like a family and to forgive and to reconcile and to love. And so it takes humility to be a part of the church. It takes humility to be a part of a local church. It takes humility to be prepared to serve one another. All of these things Christ exhibited. I think this is one of the reasons why, at very least, he travelled with at least 12 other travelling companions. They travelled in close proximity. They ate together. They lived in close proximity together as they moved about from town to town. 
There were others who joined in their company as well. We read of several women who traveled with them as well. And so Christ traveled with a small group, a small band of people, perhaps up to as many as 20 people or so. And there would have been the normal things that happen in a group of people. But Christ, as the leader of that group, was teaching them something. Toward the end of his ministry, he took them up to the far northern district of Israel, up near Caesarea Philippi, where that was where the Syrophoenician woman came. So right near Syria and the Canaanite area of Phoenicia. And so Christ showed his disciples that he didn't even come just for Jews, just for those of Hebrew stock. He came for all people and he wanted them to know it. He didn't just come for men. Christ treated women with a dignity that was historically unprecedented. We see in Scripture the the place of dignity that Christ gave to women. And perhaps one of the highest demonstrations of that is when it was women who were the first to announce the resurrection of Christ. That is the essence of the gospel. So we see something that Christ wants his church to be made up of people who are intentionally different, yet they learn how to get along. Sometimes we gravitate to those who are just like us, and that's understandable. Christ places us, though, in a church where he knows what it will take to make us holy, that is, like Christ. And so as we look at this picture we see that on the day of Pentecost, when the church was birthed, Christ had already told, I've come to seek and save the lost, but I've come to gather the lost into a family called the church. This is Matthew chapter 16. Christ came to build his church, and he said not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. So we see that when the church was established, perhaps the original apostles assumed that It would be structured very similarly to the synagogue that they had been uh, that they'd grown accustomed to and in fact the early churches were indeed fashioned after the order of the synagogue there was a pastor a teacher one who was an administrator and so on just as there had been in the synagogue there was also elders and there were officers who served in various capacities and this was one of the first organizational functional structural changes that the church made that we see that on the in the book of acts in acts chapter 6 where there was a dispute that arose and the church restructured by appointing seven deacons so this bore some similarity to what the original apostles were used to by attending the synagogue but as the church grew we see that it had to restructure a little bit differently as it moved into Gentile territory where the idea of a synagogue structure was unfamiliar to them. And ultimately, we see in the New Testament that Christ gave the suffering persecuted church a glimpse of where his church would end up. And so we see this in the book of Revelation, as we'll see in a moment, that Christ gave a vision to his apostles of a church made up of people from all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all worshipping together, declaring the praises of God. This was the grand vision that Christ gave. And I think as he taught us to pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, has some bearing on how we today as the church are to be. So how did the church accommodate its growth? 
Because when we reimagine church, we have to reimagine that Christ wants to save more people than perhaps we're prepared for him to save. When we pray for the lost to come to know Christ, I wonder how many of us realise the implication of that prayer, that by praying for the lost, we're praying for people who are broken, emotionally disturbed, perhaps even mentally disturbed as well. We're praying for people who perhaps have come out of strange religions, perhaps people who have, in their mind, tried Christianity, and perhaps they've been disappointed, and they're still lost. And Christ is calling us to pray for the lost, to come in just as he did. And so being the church today can be uncomfortable. In fact, someone has said, if you come to church and it's all too comfortable for you, you're probably not in church, you're probably somewhere else. Because God will call his people to move out of their comfort zone and to move into those parts of the world that are going to make us uncomfortable. And perhaps that uncomfortability starts right in our own neighbourhood, in our own city. So as we consider the kind of church that God wants, we see in Scripture that the church did the following. Firstly, they gathered together regularly. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says this, when you gather on the first day of the week, do this. And the whole point to bring that up is that he says, when you gather on the first day of the week, that of course is Sunday. The Jewish, the Jewish believers gathered on the seventh day, that was known as the Sabbath. It was a day of rest, a day of worship, a day of reflection. And it seems that when the church was birthed, on the day of Pentecost, that was also a Sunday. And it seems that when Christ was resurrected, that was also on a Sunday, that Christ was establishing something that would be new, the new covenant. It would take as its day of worship, its holy day, the first day of the week, the day after the seventh, the, if you count, eighth day of the week. It would be new. And one of the single greatest proofs of the resurrection of Christ is that just so many thousands of Jewish believers who had their cultural identity linked to coming together and worshipping on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, they were so readily able to transfer every bit of that into Sunday, the first day of the week, in honour of Christ being raised from the dead, and the church being birthed on the first day of the week. So we see the early Christians gathered on the first day of the week, and they made sure they did. And we read that it was often taking place at night because it involved not just the free people, the householders, the people who had their own homes, their own businesses, their own jobs or whatever, but it also involved slaves. The Apostle Paul writes to slaves about how they are to conduct themselves now that they are Christians. And he writes to those who owned slaves, not commending slavery, not endorsing slavery, but he writes to them anyway. He writes to these people who had stewardship over slaves and tells them how to treat their slaves. But the point is that there was master and slave in the early church, both 
being treated equal, both with equal standing before God. There were men and women who could gather. Women had the same equality as men in the early church. And so we see that the church was organised in a way that people could come together. But we also see that the church was organised under leadership. The church is not without leadership. There are some who would rather see the churches everyone has an equal say an equal uh, as if it was a democratic organization and in one sense there is an aspect of democracy but clearly christ called people to lead after all he chose 12 apostles one of them of course betrayed him but the early church was very quick to replace him 12 apostles who were to act as leaders And within the local church, we read in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 and 12 that God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers of these at least five ministry gifts. We see that there's a leadership call on them as well. We see that the early church practiced a fellowship. The Greek word for that is koinonia. We see in Acts chapter 2 and verses 46 and on that the early church met not just together on a Sunday but they met in their homes through the week they fellowshiped with each other they shared meals together they shared time together church is about fellowship we also see that the early church met in small groups house to house and also in a larger gathering they met in the temple precinct initially And so we read that in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. And again in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesian church that he went and he met with them house to house in their house meetings. But then there would have been a larger gathering where all of the house Christians of Acts in the Ephesian church would have gathered as well. So we see the church is about the larger gathering and the smaller gathering as well. When they met together, they met with a sense of order. So we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40, where the Apostle Paul says, let everything be done in order. Let it be done orderly. What else were they to do when they gathered? We read in Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, and also Paul writing to Timothy, who was pastoring the Ephesian church at that time, that prayers were to be offered. Prayers for those in authority, Prayers for those who would lead to the church, Christians, being able to live peaceable lives. And so we see that there was prayers offered. Prayers for governors, prayers for the emperor, prayers for those in authority. And so the church met together to pray together. We also see in Colossians chapter 4 that the, Paul writing to the Colossians, he tells them to sing. Sing songs, sing spiritual songs, sing sing hymns together, he tells them. Christianity became a singing religion, a religion where the worship was done through singing. Even today, we gather to sing our worship together, to do what the psalmist says and to rejoice before God with singing and with musical instruments We see Paul writing to Timothy that he was not to neglect the preaching of the word of God. So we see that the word of God was preached regularly.
people needed to be taught the word of God. They needed to be preached in a way that it motivated them to action. And so we see Paul telling them not to neglect doing that. In that 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 passage, we see that Paul's actually talking about one of the offerings that they would have taken up. And in this instance, it was an offering for the poor of Jerusalem. So we see that offerings were taken up when they met together. We see that there was a membership role. Paul, in writing to Timothy, talks about those widows who perhaps were unable to look after themselves because of the, their husbands dying for whatever reason. And Paul tells Timothy, make sure that those widows who are worthy of support remain on the roll. It seems that there was a partnership, a register, a membership role of the early church. People were committed to their local church and this was reflected in a role. We see that the church conducted baptisms. People were baptised. Of course, we read that in Acts chapter 2 as well. But then later on, we read hints of this happening. In Colossians, Paul refers to it. In Romans chapter 6, Paul refers to it happening among the Roman Christians. We also see that when the church gathered, they celebrated one of the other ordinances of the church, and that is Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. This is where we take the unleavened bread and the unfermented wine and we remember that Christ said, This is my body, this is my blood, which was shed for you. And so when we meet together in what many churches call a, a sacramental moment, a sacrament, we physically enter into our worship as well. Worship isn't just an emotion, it's not just a an intangible, immaterial thing. In this part of the church's worship service, we take of that which represents and speaks of Christ's body. We tangibly enter into worship and we drink of the wine, that unfermented wine that represents his sinless blood. We also see Paul in writing to the Corinthians that they practiced certain spiritual gifts, gifts of prophecy or speaking in tongues to be interpreted into a prophetic word, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. Some were able to pray for the sick and see them healed. They had the gifts of healing. We see that spiritual gifts were practiced in the early church. These were audible gifts and other gifts, demonstrations of signs and wonders and power that the Apostle Paul refers to. So gifts were used. Today, we may have various gifts that can also be used to glorify God when we meet. So what's our vision? What's our vision of what we see ultimately? Well, before we look at our vision, how about the vision that Christ gave the early church? We see in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where Christ gave this suffering church, this church that was enduring much persecution under the, the Neronic persecution, where hundreds of thousands of believers around the world were being butchered. And as they were being butchered, John himself was exiled to Patmos. And we see that on Patmos, Christ gave him a vision while it may have looked like the church was not going to make it past the first century, 
the Apostle John has given this vision of the church. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says this, After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so we see John is given this vision of people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, all languages, standing together. And the beautiful symbolism of holding palm branches, we're reminded of the victory that God gave Israel over Jericho, which Jericho means city of palm trees. And they waved those palm branches around Jericho for six days and then on the seventh day blew their trumpet and the walls fell down so palm branches became an emblem of the victory that the Lord gave to his people as they trusted him and in the same way as the early church was going through massive persecution the apostle John gives the church a vision that Christ gave him of the church holding palm branches in their hand an emblem of their ultimate victory if they remained faithful and they would be clothed in white robes a picture of their their sinless resurrected glorified bodies and they sang they sang with a loud voice and the song they sang was salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb what a beautiful picture and then as Revelation comes to a close in chapter 19, we see the beautiful picture that Christ gave of his church as his bride. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. There it is again, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us exult. And rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and so there we have it again that grand vision of what the church ultimately would look like we read again in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. Then the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And of course, a thousand in Scripture is a number that's just indicating it, this is not meant to be counted. In other words, how long will Christ reign? He will reign forever. And it says here that those who have been washed in his blood, who have been faithful to him, who sing the song of the Lamb, which we just read a moment ago, will be clothed again in white. They will be resurrected. Blessed are those who are part of the first resurrection, and that's our salvation because then the second death, which is eternal condemnation, will not have any effect on them. This is the vision 
that Christ had for his church. What's the application for today? We need to reimagine what our Sabbath looks like, what the first day of the week, the Sunday looks like. Maybe we need to get a vision that it, it shouldn't just be about children's sports. It shouldn't just be about sleeping in. It shouldn't be just about having a picnic somewhere. Our first priority should be to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to meet together as the church, just as the early church did. Make it a day to rest, of course, but also a day to worship together, to receive the word together, to pray together and to worship together. Make it a day to fellowship. You know, this could be the answer to the pandemic of loneliness that we have now. People come to church and are treated with great dignity. This is what I want us to reimagine, where all people are welcome, no matter what their skin colour, no matter what their sexuality, no matter what their football team. Maybe we could reimagine a church where its leaders are servant-hearted, as described in the New Testament, who exhibit the qualities of humility, compassion, caring, who are clearly spirit-led, as the apostles said the first deacons had to be, who do so in leading in the church, not for prestige or for gain, but to please their Lord. Make this, this gathering of the church today that we could reimagine that it would be a time where we actually take our focus off ourselves, our cares, our worries, and we worship God. We lift our vision onto him and make it a day where we invite people. Make it a day where all people are invited and all people are welcome. And make it a day, make the gathering of the church, make your reimagined vision of the church to be one that is informed by God's word and led by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be that kind of church, that kind of church that honours you, that kind of church that is informed by your word, and may we be the kind of church that has not just as a sign on our door, all welcome, but Lord, hearts that reflect it. May each church in our city, each church in our state, each church in our nation be a house of healing, a house of forgiveness, a house of reconciliation. And I pray, Lord, for those who feel that they are beyond your care, that they feel like they are a million miles away from you, that, Lord, right now in this moment, they would hear your voice saying, Come home, come to me, all who labour and are burdened with their worries and cares, and I will take it off you and I will give you rest. And, Father, I pray for those right now within the sound of my voice, that they would respond to your call to come home and be adopted by you as your son or daughter. And I pray for us as a church that we might know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.